Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. I'm Laura Robinson. And today we're discussing Paula Fredrickson's 1986 essay, Paul and Augustine, Conversion Narratives, Orthodox Traditions, and the Retrospective Self. So Ian, what is this article about? Paula Fredrickson is going to examine what she calls the two fountainheads for conversion narratives in Western Christianity. That is, the Apostle Paul and St. Augustine. These, she says, provide the prototype for the Christian convert and therefore, of course, for the Christian mission for all of Western Christianity. And Fredrickson is going to argue that Western Christianity has actually misinterpreted Paul in the light of Augustine, and also misinterpreted Augustine in light of what we can say historically and rhetorically about the role and function of conversion narratives in theological reflection. Historically and traditionally in Christian thought, it's common to read Paul's conversion as being very much like Augustine's. We might call this the Augustinian Lutheran read of Paul's conversion. This is heavily influenced by Acts, where a law-observant Paul, who is a Orthodox Jew uh, with a sin problem, who is aware of his sinfulness, converts from his Jewish orthodoxy and becomes an orthodox Christian and a participant in the law-free gospel. This is a very common way of understanding Paul's conversion, but is that, of course, correct? Right. So the big picture here is there's this notion of conversion, and Fredrickson is going to cite the very influential book on conversion by Arthur Darby Nock that describes conversion as a deliberate turning, that is rejecting one religion in favor of another. There, there are these two, quote, two clearly perceived and sharply contrasting religious options that a person leaves one and enters the other. And this has partly been constructed from and also been read onto both Paul and St. Augustine. And Fredrickson is going to argue that this is actually a bad description of what happens to Paul and to a lesser degree a bad description of what happens to Augustine. So Fredrickson is really interested in this idea that Acts narrates a much more Lutheran Augustinian model of conversion, that the pull of Acts does turn from Jewish orthodoxy to Christian orthodoxy, and that this is at odds with Paul's own self-reporting in Galatians. Ian and I aren't going to lean as hard into this as, as this article does. Uh, for one thing, a lot of these topics are covered really well in John Knox's book, Chapters in a Life of Paul, on how um, where the discrepancies, discrepancies between Acts and uh, the letters show up, and how do we think about them historically. I just kind of generally think that the difference between the conversion in Acts and the conversion in Galatians, though, is a bit overstated yeah. in this article. She very much wants to frame this whole thing as reading Paul in his own words versus reading Paul through the book of Acts. At least that's how she starts right. setting this up. And in service of that, she enumerates, you know, these differences between Acts and Paul. Uh, the difference mm -hmm. in where they, where Paul was involved in persecuting people, Jerusalem versus elsewhere, whether Paul is on a mission to the Jews first as an Acts or to the Gentiles as he represents himself in his letters. And of course, Paul's relationship to the disciples. She sets these up as contrasts. And I mm -hmm. think there's a, like Laura mentioned, there's a better treatment of all these topics actually in John Knox. And 
I also think like this actually doesn't really work for her bigger thesis. She's even going to rely on data from Axe to make the argument. I think Laura and I both agree that she overreads the difference between Paul and Axe. Axe as she needs it sets up a Paul who's leaving Judaism for Christianity. But as we'll see, mm -hmm. um, this isn't what we find in the letters of Paul or the right. book of Acts. Uh, so one place where Fredrickson talks about where Axe and Paul agree on Paul's before and after is who Paul was in relationship to the question of persecution. Axe and the letters of Paul agree that Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, both of them report him persecuting the developing Christian movement. Uh, when at some point and quite suddenly Paul experiences this sudden reversal in his religious sentiments and stops persecuting the movement and in fact joins it. Fredrickson whittles down uh, claims we can make about Paul's uh, conversion experience to a very, very short list. Uh, Fredrickson is not really interested in sort of narrating the broader context of this experience. The number of things she thinks we can historically defend that happened at this conversion is, is very short. That Paul was told to stop persecuting Christians, uh, that Paul realized something was important about Jesus. Uh, Fredrickson doesn't really want to pin down exactly what that is. And that Paul was told to proclaim Jesus to the Gentiles. That's the content of his call, as well as Fredrickson can construct it. So let's be really clear, at least how we're reading Fredrickson, what is, what is it that she's critiquing and what is it that she is promoting in place of that? It seems to me that what she's set up to critique is this reading of the conversion, wherein Paul leaves one clearly defined religion in preference to another. And as we'll see, and she's going to argue we should replace that with an understanding of Paul not converting, but being called a prophetic, experiencing a prophetic call to a new mission in service of the same God, in service of the same religious tradition. Mm -hmm. So it's perfectly clear that Paul does experience a switch. He switches from being the persecutor and part of a persecuting group of people to join the people he's persecuting, to join the persecuted. And in the Lutheran-Augustinian way of reading this conversion account, that is a switch from law-observant Judaism, plus a sin problem, which we're going to talk about a bit more, so law-observant Judaism, over to a law-free gospel. These are these, what, what Paul is leaving behind and switching over to. And Fredrickson is going to begin critiquing this by pointing out that this doesn't work mapped onto Paul's persecuting activities because Paul is persecuting law-observant Jewish Jesus followers. One thing that's very important to remember when we talk about all of this is that Paul's conversion or Paul's call happens very, very early in the Christian story. This is very early in Christian history. So the idea that there are these developed networks of uh, Gentile churches that have their own understanding of Christology, all of that stuff is really anachronistic. And there's actually very good evidence uh, that the Christians, the, the Jesus worshipers, you know, we might not even want to use the word Christian yet, the Jesus worshipers that Paul was persecuting must have been people who considered themselves Jewish and people who still kept the Torah uh, as part of their Jewish practice, they just also happened to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. What's the evidence for this? The fact that Paul can leverage Jewish authorities to go after 
Christ worshippers suggest that all of these people are Jewish. These must be places where Paul, who is a non-Christian Pharisee, would be considered to be an authority. Paul does not work for the state. He is not prosecuting like civic crimes. He is dealing with interreligious disputes with apparently synagogue discipline. I mean, the other alternative, of course, is, um, you know, Doug Campbell has talked about the idea of this all being sort of very unofficial. And I think that's also a reasonable possibility. In the book of Acts, where we have Paul um, getting a letter from the Sanhedrin in order to get permission to go root out Christians in Damascus, this is Everyone involved has to be affiliated with the synagogue for this to make sense. The the Sanhedrin is on board with what Paul's doing. Paul is going to work within the synagogue. And the authorities that are local in these synagogues are accept Paul's authority to do this. Paul can't just go into a Roman household and start attacking people, right? I think this is really a point worth driving home. And it's a place where I think the history of, you know, film adaptations or things like that, have actually done a disservice for our understanding of what a Pharisee is. Paul, as a first-century Pharisee, obviously does not work for the Roman government. He does not have some official capacity whereby he can travel to Syria, Damascus and Syria, and go into random people's homes and arrest them for being Christians. This isn't how any of this works. Paul's interest and ability to persecute Christians assumes that these Christians are still parts of an organization that would recognize the authority of a traveling Pharisee. Pharisees right. don't even hold official positions in, you know, the, the temple organization of Judaism. These are people who are more or less independent religious experts. Um, some people have called them the Calvinist bloggers of the first century. They're, they're the people who hold themselves up as authorities with respect to religious subject matters and get all of that authority from the recognition they receive from other people. So this is like a pastor of a local church traveling to another town and walking into that church and saying, I'm here to, to punish some of your congregation. And the only reason any member of that congregation is going to recognize that is if they want to continue to be part of a church that recognizes this traveling preacher as an authority. I also think it's really important to modulate what exactly we mean by synagogue discipline in these contexts. The modes of persecution that are available to Paul are through through his religious authority or completely independent vigilantism. He has no access to the state mechanisms or uh, or, or the power of the Roman state. So if Paul is just operating as a vigilante, which some people have defended. There are stories in the New Testament where it seems like the historical kernel is some kind of um, just mob violence. The execution of Stephen is probably a really good example of that. There are incidences in the New Testament and in early history where it does seem like Mob violence did break out. This is the thing that happens in the ancient world. But if we do, th- if we think though that Paul was. Um, operating in some kind of, uh, in the capacity of religious authority, what we're really talking about here is synagogue discipline. Synagogue discipline is the process by which troublemakers in a synagogue are publicly reprimanded in order that they may be corrected and brought back into the 
into the synagogue community. Uh, this is particularly true in the diaspora, where synagogues don't really have any local governing authority. These are mostly voluntary associations where you can be part of the synagogue if you want. And if you are found to be out of step with your synagogue and they want to discipline you and punish you to correct you so that you're not in error, submitting to that punishment is how you return in good graces to the fold. Synagogue discipline in this context refers to flogging. Um, I want to also be careful that we know what we're talking about when we say flogging. Obviously, we have these extremely violent images uh, 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 of Roman flogging, which was often a capital or pre-capital punishment, an uh, extremely gory process that caused massive blood loss and could easily kill you. This is not what happens in a synagogue, right? This is done with the goal of correcting you and bringing you back. The synagogue process of flogging somebody is a strap. It's sort of like a switch. It's a rawhide strap. So it's going to hurt. It's going to mostly be embarrassing, honestly. Uh, and this is a process you submit to in order to uh, return to the synagogue in good graces once you have been disciplined for disturbing the peace or causing a commotion or whatever it is you have been found guilty of doing. Just as a related note to that, this is really striking when Paul acknowledges his own flogging in the synagogues in 1 Corinthians. Yes. Because it means that Paul is doing things in order to continue his membership in a synagogue that is punishing him for preaching. Um, this right. is something he goes through in order to continue being part of this group, uh, which Fredrickson doesn't make a point of here, but is important uh, for reframing or criticizing this whole notion we have of Paul switching religions. Right, yeah, exactly. Paul is going through essentially the readmissions process to the synagogue when he has been found of doing something that disturbs the disturbs the proceedings, right? If you want to know more about the role of the synagogue in Jewish society and what it means for a synagogue to be a voluntary society, I would recommend the Anders Runison article, Saving the Lost Sheep of the House of Israel, Purity, Forgiveness, and Synagogues in the Gospel of Matthew. There's some great sources in there. There's a lot of stuff that's been written about the ancient synagogue that can kind of help us get a sense of what, what this means as a civic institution. The big point, of course, is that Paul is going to persecute Christians or Jesus followers who continue to be law-observant Jews. And this is not a place where Paul's letters disagree with the book of Acts. Despite Fredrickson's own framing, this is something that Acts actually agrees with Paul on. That is, mm -hmm. Paul slash Saul has his road to Damascus experience, his encounter with Jesus, his call to ministry in service of Jesus in Acts 9. Peter doesn't have his vision, which brings about the inclusion of the Gentiles until Acts 10. And the approval of a law-free mission to the Gentiles doesn't happen until Acts 15. Mm -hmm. It's obviously been happening sometime between Acts 10 and Acts 15. But there's nothing in Acts to suggest that Paul is persecuting law-free non-Jewish Christians. Uh, right. Quite the contrary. And as Douglas Campbell pointed out in a helpful article on Galatians 5.11, Paul seems to indicate that he formerly preached a law-observant gospel before switching over to a law-free mission to the Gentiles. Besides all of this, there's not a lot of good evidence in early Jewish literature that Jews anticipated the coming of the Messiah, meaning the abrogating of Torah, or that the Messiah would do away with Torah in some way. So if... The if this emergent group of Jesus worshippers has decided that Jesus has done away with the Torah, this is really surprising, and we would probably want some more evidence to indicate why they thought that. Uh, when we look at 
the book of Acts and we look at uh, Paul's own statements about Jesus and the apostles, not to mention the gospels, it seems like consistently the uh, Jesus and the apostles are portrayed as being Torah observant themselves. So again, the idea that messianic worship of Jesus means no Torah, uh, that's a tough case to make. And there's just not a really good one to be made from the documents we have. So Fredrickson feels like she needs to give some account then for why there are two parties. If they're Mm -hmm. both law-observant Jews, why is one group persecuting another? And the answer probably has something to do with Jesus. She raises uh, this idea that someone hanging on a cross is cursed and preaching that that's a messiah, maybe offensive to, to Jewish people, is a sort of older idea in the history of modern scholarship. And there's certain problems with it. Um, there's just not a lot of compelling evidence for this outside of Galatians itself. Yeah, it's an overreading of Galatians 3.13, yeah. I think. It's just not what it means. Um, yeah, so. exactly. She says more likely this has to do with the apocalyptic message of Jesus, that a mm-hmm. crucified person is going to come back and judge, is going to be a savior figure for Israel. She says that's probably inherently offensive to a Jewish hearer, and at the same time threatens to destabilize the relationship that Judeans have with their Roman occupiers. The, the other thing I just thought of while I was sitting here mm-hmm. is um, the historical Jesus's relationship with the temple and whether or not Jesus spoke against the temple is a subject of interest in historical Jesus scholarship. And we do have that parallel in Josephus of the prophet who spoke against the temple and said woe to the temple and was basically a synagogue discipline for it, right? Yeah. So it's, I, I don't know. I mean, by the time you add some possibly controversial elements of Jesus's message, the, the messianic claims other people are making against him and the missionary zealotry of the early church. Mm. It's not hard for me to believe that you don't want a lot of these guys in your synagogue if you don't buy it, right? This actually so, seems pretty intuitive. To clarify, you're suggesting, this is not in Fredrickson, but you're suggesting that part of the problem that may have occasioned the persecution or the, the conflict that was going on that Paul switched sides on is that there are a group of law observant Jewish people here who are championing a teacher who had made statements against the current temple. Yeah, um, who might have died with a bad reputation because of exactly. that. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a very interesting idea. Mm-hmm. For the purposes of this article, it's just important that there's something about the message of Jesus Christ, message about Jesus Christ that would have occasioned this conflict that Paul can switch sides on that isn't Judaism, <laughs> right? Right, that's, yeah. That's her yeah, thing, yeah. Is, is Paul isn't persecuting non-Jews for Judaism and then switches sides. Right. He is a law-observant Jew persecuting law-observant Jews who are right. interested in remaining law-observant Jews over some third issue that, you know, there are multiple ways of figuring out what that might have been. Yeah, at issue is the messianic status of Jesus, I think, that there's plenty of good reason to think this is enough of a grounds for conflict. Yep. Fredrickson says that Luke Acts is more interested in this conflict of religions model, and in light of this, Pauline scholars have actually misread some stuff in Paul. The best support one might find for this switching between religions model in Paul might be something like Philippians 3, where he talks about all of his righteous works, his righteousness under the law, being counted as not in the light of Jesus. So if you 
come with this model in mind, Philippians 3 reads like a rejection of Jewishness, of Jewish law observance, in favor of righteousness through Jesus Christ that one might imagine mapping onto the Damascus Road experience. But there's really no reason to do that, argues Fredrickson. That is a overreading of what Paul actually says in Philippians 3. And much more likely, and we'll, this, we'll unpack this more when we talk about Augustine and the rhetorical work of conversion in the letter of Galatians, but this is a point Paul is making about Jewish, one's Jewish pedigree in the context of Philippians. And this is getting illegitimately mapped on to a punctiliar experience that, of Paul's prophetic call. The way Fredrickson describes Paul's religious change of mind is that this was a lateral movement within Judaism. This was not a change for Paul between two different religions. He had one understanding of Judaism, and then he had another one. In the same way, we don't say that Luther converted when Luther uh, made his theological insights that started the Protestant Reformation, right? That's not a conversion. That's a change of your uh, of your religious understanding. In a lot of ways, I think we can make the same... Uh, Fredrickson says we can make the same claim about Paul, and I think that's probably true, too. We do see in Galatians, Paul... T- talks about this moment as his uh, as his call to missionary work, right? This is a prophetic call, n- not a turning away from Judaism. We have already on this podcast, and we'll in a bit criticize some analogies between Luther and Paul, but this is one that actually is somewhat mm-hmm. helpful. This we don't think of Luther as converting to something like Protestantism uh, right. when he begins criticizing the Roman Catholic tradition. And Mm -hmm. she cites here importantly, because I think this does raise this problematic disanalogy, she cites here Krister Stendhal, which is our very first episode, and E.P. Sanders on how Paul views the tradition he was brought up in, the tradition that he continues to participate in, in light of this prophetic call. And the argument of Stendhal and Sanders is that Paul doesn't seem to represent himself as having been a bad Jew, right? (laughs) Um, And Paul Mm -hmm. doesn't look back at Judaism and say, you know, it was impossible to do all that. He says instead that in light of the cross, that's all counted as nothing. So Sanders famously says, you know, the problem Paul has with Judaism is that it's not Christianity. But the important point here is that when Paul looks back at his life prior to his prophetic call, he doesn't say I was terrible at it. He doesn't say that was all rubbish and we had it all wrong. Well, he does say it's all rubbish, but only in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A huge part of Fredrickson's article is also particularly interested in the question of what exactly a conversion narrative is. That for Fredrickson, it's not enough to ask the question, what did Paul change his mind about? What did he stop doing? What did he start doing? The bigger question for Fredrickson is what is a conversion narrative and what does this actually accomplish? So I think we might think of a conversion narrative as a recollection of a time where you had you know, a, a building awareness of some kind of a problem, followed by some sort of uh, moment of insight, moment of revelation, after which things were changed. But what Fredrickson wants to focus on is the fact that conversion is necessarily related retrospectively. We have to describe conversion 
after the fact that it happens. And we re-narrate history leading up to that moment to make sense of why we changed our minds. And we describe what happened afterwards in a way that is coherent with that, right? Uh, These are experiences that are always related retrospectively, colored by later experiences, uh, and they are framed to justify your own experience of conversion and why you did. The example that Fredrickson uses is Augustine and the way that Augustine narrates his own conversion. So Fredrickson's article really takes a pivot here. Her goal now is going to be to look at how Paul uses this prophetic call rhetorically within the purpose, the polemic, the agenda of his letters. And to do this, she says, we should go look at this other great figure of Western Christianity and conversion narratives, that is St. Augustine, the 4th and 5th century bishop of North Africa, who is famous, of course, from his confessions and the city of God, etc., Now, before we get lost in the weeds with Augustine, the point of this is that we have multiple sources for Augustine's experience that is usually called his conversion. And each of them describes it differently in order to serve the current or the ongoing problems Augustine is facing. So the earliest description we get of Augustine's conversion is the Cassiacum Dialogues, which are written shortly after the actual event itself. And in these, Augustine describes his conversion as a continued process, progress in his philosophical journey. Uh, He has been contemplating the nature of evil, the nature of creation, things like this. This brought him to Manichaeism famously. And he sees this turn to orthodoxy from Manichaeism as him solving these problems that have bothered him his whole life. Whereas in Book 8 of the Confessions, the much more famous scene where he's sitting in the garden and he hears the child yell tole lege, he picks up the Book of Romans, reads chapter 13, and he reads this description to give up waywardness, give up sin, and repents. This narrative is in service of a different set of controversies. Here, Augustine is concerned with issues of free will, is concerned with issues of right conduct, And we see this again when Augustine returns to his conversion once more in the anti-Pelagian writings, where he now wants to emphasize preordained grace, etc. The point isn't the details about Augustine. The point is that Augustine's version of events changes depending on when he is relating these things, because he reconstructs this narrative differently in his head, depending on what he's bringing it up to discuss. This is how a lot of memoir works, right? This is not, Augustine is not even close to the first person in uh, literature we could observe this with. But of course, when you're talking about a conversion narrative and you're describing a moment of realization, there's a lot of shifting that can happen with how you construct the narrative and, and why you're doing it. Fredrickson says, Augustine's account of his conversion in the Confessions is, in other words, a theological reinterpretation of a past event, an attempt to render his past coherent to his present self. It is, in fact, a description of where he stands in the present as much as an ostensible description of what occurred in the past. And he constructs his description from his reading of Acts 9 as well as from his new theological convictions. So, Fredrickson is not arguing none of this ever happened, that Augustine did not, in fact, read from the letter to the Romans, and this was somehow important to his experience. Her point is that what gets emphasized, how the event gets told, and some of the details have more to do with 
the context, the compositional context of the confessions or the compositional context of the anti-Pelagian writings than they have to do with what actually happened to Augustine. So how does this whole question of how conversion experiences are narrated and described shape the way we respond to Paul's, Paul's own version of his call in Galatians? Fredrickson takes kind of, I would say, probably the majority view at this point about who the opponents are in Galatians, that Paul's opponents in Galatians are Jewish Christian missionaries. And she argues that the specific issue at at, at debate that's being debated in Galatians is Paul's pedigree and status as a Jewish missionary, as a Jewish representative, uh, over against these other Jews, over against these other Jews who also claim this Jewish pedigree. And Paul is here defending himself, she says, against the charge that he has abandoned Jewish missionary tradition. By Jewish missionary tradition here, Fredrickson means the idea that there were steps towards repentance Gentiles were expected to make during the coming of the eschaton in order to participate in it. In some early Jewish writing that depicts the eschaton, uh, there is an idealized image of Gentiles abandoning their idols and their uh, sexual immoralities and some other things that Jews found to be particularly offensive. They might not convert to Judaism, but they do start keeping the the wisdom of, of the Torah in these respects. Uh, there's also, a, there's a tradition of the Noahide covenant, uh, people keeping the, the law as it was given to Noah. Her argument is that Paul is in dispute with people who are borrowing from this Jewish missionary tradition who do expect the Gentiles to meet these certain behavioral standards, uh, and Paul is not doing that. So Paul needs some good reason for why he's not doing that. There's a whole nexus of problems with Jewish missionary practice and whether or not this was a Christian innovation or this is something that pre-existed Christianity and whether or not circumcision and law observance was an expectation for Gentiles that we just can't get into. If you want a fuller discussion of this, go listen to our episode 21, which is Paula Fredrickson, Judaism, the circumcision of Gentiles, and the apocalyptic hope. Um, another article by Fredrickson where we discussed this more fully. The central point here seems to be that the reason why Paul is conflicting with these teachers in Galatia is because they are expecting as is normal in their tradition, for Gentiles to reach certain behavioral standards in order to be accepted in the eschatological community. And Paul is proclaiming this law-free gospel, which is not the same. And in response, Paul describes himself as receiving this sort of divine commission in the tradition of Isaiah or Jeremiah or these other classic Hebrew prophet figures and maintains that he got his message directly from God. And that's why it's okay that he has made this change. I am going to break with Fredrickson here. I don't think that's this is what Paul is fighting with the Galatians about. I don't think this is quite it. We're both going to take issue with Fredrickson ultimately here, but her claim I want to finish articulating fully is mm, mm -hmm. that the work the call narrative does for Paul in Galatians is make Paul seem like a Jewish prophet, like a Isaiah or Jeremiah, receiving mm -hmm. a direct commission from God, and that this, in a contest with the Galatians over Jewish credentials, over Jewish pedigree, over who is breaking from Jewish missionary tradition, that's her, her phrase, over who yeah. is breaking from that tradition, 
Paul seeks to legitimate himself and his practice and his message by making himself look like Jeremiah and Isaiah, who receive this direct commission from God. Mm-hmm. That is, that's the real payoff for reading these texts in light of this whole discussion. That we can understand the rhetorical work that this narrative is doing for Paul as an appeal to the prophetic calls of Isaiah and Jeremiah over and against his opponents in Galatia. I think the argument about how we need to think of conversion narratives as retrospective documents is very good. And I think that the idea of backwards looking in re-narrating your past, or, or even national past, I think has a lot of relevance for a lot of fields in New Testament scholarship. I, I think when I look at Galatians, I don't see Paul fighting with Jewish missionaries about Jewish missionary practice, or even just claiming that he has authority. I don't think that's quite it. I don't think Paul is insisting on his own authority. I think Paul is very specifically insisting that his movement is um, not derivative of the Jerusalem-based church and its missionary efforts, which do tend to be more conservative about law observance. I think Paul is very insistent that he did not get any of this from them, that he is not secondary to them. And I think the specific reason why is because these missionaries Paul is engaging with, I think they treat Paul's churches like uh, staging grounds, right? That Paul goes and kind of starts stuff and gets things, gets the ball rolling. And then they come in and they bring the rest of Torah and they make proper converts of these people. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think what Paul is really insisting on is that like, we don't work together. Like, that's not, this is not what we do. You know, that Peter has the mission to the circumcised. I have the mission to the uncircumcised. We do not work together. This is not how this operates. I think that's what's going on there. I'm kind of on the same page there. I think mm-hmm. that the thing that Paul is really emphasizing is his independence from the apostles. In his autobiographical sections of the letter of Galatians, he is trying to emphasize how little contact he had, how little he got from the Jerusalem apostles, before, from uh, James and from Peter, mm-hmm. and that he is an apostleship that's independent of theirs. I think it's right to look for the rhetorical work that the call narrative is doing, but I think it's doing that work for him, legitimating his own independent apostleship. Is there any way mm-hmm. to save Fredrickson alongside of that? Are they necessarily in conflict? Um, maybe, but we don't see Paul making explicit connections with Isaiah and Jeremiah's prophetic call narratives. It just doesn't seem to be what's being stressed in the opening of Galatians. No, the pointed issue is not about how significant Paul's call is. At least I don't think so. I, I don't think that's what I'm hearing in Galatians. I don't think he, he doesn't talk about the experience. Um, and I think especially, I, I think one thing that's really noticeable is that Paul is very much more interested in the aftermath of this call yep. in Galatians. Uh, there are images from Isaiah and Jeremiah of the, of the experience itself of being called. He could have used to describe the moment of commissioning much more fully if he wanted to make those connections. The thing Paul is particularly interested in is after I got this call, I didn't see any of these guys. Like, I don't know them. I didn't go to Jerusalem. You know, like th- this is the big insistence, right? Is that they they did not have contact. The issue is how do they relate to the church in Jerusalem? And I think Paul's answer is we don't. We don't relate to right. each other. So this article is helpful insofar as it critiques characterizing Paul's Mm -hmm. call to follow Jesus 
as a conversion. And I think that's absolutely mm -hmm. right. And we've criticized Fredrickson for overreading Axe in this respect, but ultimately we agree with her conclusion. Moreover, it's the, there's a helpful methodological point about how we read conversion narratives as always apologetic, as always anachronistic, as always retrojecting mm -hmm. current, present concerns into the past and you bringing up the past in order to justify contemporary practices. Right. We discussed this fully actually in the episode about my article, the Pagan Readers of Christian Scripture mm -hmm. article, which is somewhere in the tens. That's a good point. But then we take issue with how she uses this to read Galatians, um, I think. Maybe this would be a little more helpful as a way of looking at how the conversion narrative, Augustine Luther conversion narrative, gets read into Philippians 3. And there's an interesting point she makes yeah. about how Augustine reading Paul in light of Acts becomes this sort of echo chamber in which uh, Paul is sort of gradually turned more and more into the repentant sinner that Augustine constructs himself as yeah. in light of his own conflicts with Pelagius and how this whole narrative actually sort of gets built up as Augustine rereads Paul in light of his biography and his biography in light of Paul. And this gets more and more extreme and more and more far away from what we can say about the historical experience of Paul. The other thing that I really like about this is the scaling down of what exactly happened at Paul's call. The, the list of things Paul did in response to this is uh, is not extensive uh, by the by the best historical estimates. I think that that the um, a lot of things in Paul's life could stay as they were, specifically his beliefs about Judaism. Right. So I think that's I think that's all really important to emphasize and really important to uh, to frame. So there's a there's a few places where I do disagree with this article, you know, specifically about what's being debated in Galatians. But still, lots of great stuff in this article, and I'm really glad yeah. we did it. Yeah, me too. The article, as with Fredericks, a lot of Fredrickson's work, is very evocative. It brings up all these great issues. It makes some strong claims with respect to them and brings interesting lines of evidence to bear on those claims. We don't always end up agreeing with how Fredrickson executes those arguments or comes down on those things. But in my opinion, always worth reading always insightful and instructive. And one of her big contentions, the thing that this article gets cited all the time for, is that Paul didn't convert from Judaism to Christianity. Right. And that yeah. is absolutely right. And I think that's a really strong, important point. Well, thanks so much, Laura. Well, thanks, Ian. Anything else you want to add? Uh, I don't think so. I think we'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds great. Yep. Sounds good. See you next time. <laughs>